Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through 10, we're in the final two chapters of this book, and we're coming into this section where Paul is continuing in terms of what he's been saying in chapter 11, but let's read Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than what is warrant than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In chapter 11, Paul listed the sufferings he endured for the sake of the gospel. He goes through this long list there. And if you missed that, do listen to it or go back and read those portions. But instead of boasting about his accomplishments, he boasted of his weaknesses. He says, these are all my weaknesses. His goal was to remain consistent with what he had communicated in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, which says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's what he's expressing when he lists all of the sufferings that he's endured, all the things that he's gone through for the sake of the gospel. He says, all this is for the sake of the cross. It's because I have been crucified with Christ. It's because I take up the cross daily and follow him. It's because Jesus did this that he, and he called me to suffer that I endure all of these things for the sake of the gospel. Here in chapter 12, Paul describes an experience of being caught up to the third heaven. So in ancient Near Eastern and Jewish cosmology, the first heaven would be the skies, the atmosphere, what we would see around us, the clouds and all of the things around us in the atmosphere of the earth. And there are multiple verses that talk about that, the skies, the heavens, the above, proclaiming God's handiwork and you know, so, so on. We read about this. The second heaven would have been or would be outer space, the sun, the moon, the stars, you know, things that are sort of outside the realm of the earth itself, but yet in some ways visible or known to us. And the third heaven in that 
way of thinking would be the abode, the home of God, where we are joined with the Lord when we die in the Lord on earth. Right? That, that would be what the ancients would have understood or thought about when they thought about heavens, when they used that word heavens. And here, although Paul refers to himself in the third person, in verses 2 through 5, he says, I know a man. And he's doing that primarily because he's trying to you know, not draw attention to himself, and he's also trying to speak you know, objectively about what has happened. He says, you know, I, I know a man to whom this has happened, and so on. But it's very clear from verse 7 onwards, where he's referring to himself in the first person, that he's the one who's caught up in the third heaven to the third heaven. So he sort of starts that way, but then he shifts to speaking about, you know, I experience or it was given to me, and he makes it very clear that it's the first person account. And so he's the one who is hearing inexpressible things and receiving surpassing great revelations. And then he says that in order not to become conceited and proud, he says, this was given to me, this thorn in the flesh was given to me, which means it was permitted by the Lord. And this is, a, this is a concept, this would be something that we would find in the book of Job, one of the earliest books of the Bible, where this idea that when Satan sought to afflict Job, the Lord permits that to take place. Now there's a whole purpose for that and the whole reason why God does that in the life of Job and clearly there's a reason for why he's doing this in the life of Paul. But Paul uses that similar phrase, he says, this was given to me, or the Lord has permitted this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan to afflict me. Now, there has been intense speculation throughout church history as to what this thorn in the flesh was. <laughs> Some have suggested that it was a mental or physical liability. Something that was affecting them physically, something that was affecting him physically or mentally, and that it was a tormenting thought or a physical condition. Maybe a physical condition affecting his eyesight or, his, or some chronic illness or a speech impediment. You know, when they were saying, oh, he's not able to speak. Maybe he had a speech impediment. So people have speculated all sorts of things about what this thorn in the flesh was. Others have suggested that the thorn refers to people. The false apostles and false gospel workers who were attacking Paul. That's what we read about in the previous chapters. You know, there were people who were criticizing Paul, attacking him, coming at him constantly. And so some have speculated that this thorn in the flesh was those people. Now, there's some precedent for that because in Numbers chapter 33, verse 55, when, Jesus, when God is speaking about the possession of the promised land, when he's talking to the children of Israel about going into the, to the promised land, he says, you must do this, you must wipe out these people because they, if you leave them, if you allow them to remain, their gods and their activities and who they are, they will be barbs in your eyes and thorns in your side. So he uses that phrase, or the word uses that phrase to say, these people will be like thorns in your side if they are left, you know, without the judgment of God on them. So there are all these speculations. The point here is that the Bible is 
deliberately vague about the specific details of the thorn in the flesh. Because if we knew the specific details, if we said, oh, it was a physical ailment, or we said, no, it was a mental problem. You know, the Bible clearly spelled that out. It did that and was describing it that way. We would either judge others or justify ourselves based on that. Oh, see, oh, you have this condition. Oh, it must be a thorn in the flesh. Or we say, oh, you, I don't have this you know, particular condition. I don't have a thorn in the flesh. We would start to make distinctions. We would judge ourselves and others. We would justify ourselves and justify what was happening in others' lives. And we, because our tendency is to look for the reason. Oh, it must be you did this. Must be this must be the sin in your life. This is what's going on. And so the Bible is purposely, deliberately vague about trying to identify what is this specific thing. It leaves it vague, right? But even if the specific details of the thorn in the flesh are not clear, the purpose of the thorn is very clear, right? You don't know what exactly this messenger of Satan is. In what form did it attack or affect or afflict Paul? But he's very clear about the purpose for it. He says, I was given the thorn in the flesh to keep from becoming conceited or proud or elated. And, and the word elated there, in some translations it will say elated. You know, it's sort of, you can say, why would he not be elated? Why wouldn't you be happy? Because if you become so happy in what you have experienced. Oh, I went to the third heaven and what a joy. And oh, I saw this. Now what you're doing is making a distinction to others about your experience. And so Paul says, this thorn in the flesh was given so that I would not be boasting about my experience. I would not become conceited or proud that I was a better Christian than, or better believer, better child of God than others. Oh, you've never been to the third heaven? Oh, I've been to the third heaven you know so that so that you know so that he wouldn't do things like that and he wouldn't say oh I'm so excited and because what if you are elated about an experience that somebody else has not had what does the other person say I must be a lesser Christian because I've never had that I've never experienced that kind of elation that kind of joy that kind of whatever it may be that healing that deliverance oh it must be this person is privileged or able or capable and I don't know if I can get that so purposely, there isn't those kinds of distinctions that are made. And purposely, this thorn is given so that Paul says, I would not become conceited. I will not become proud. I will not become elated. And then, quite importantly, most importantly, that's in verse 7 he says that. But in verses 9 and 10, most importantly, he says, this thorn in the flesh was given to me so that God's strength would be apparent in my weakness. There's something that is causing me to be weak and not dependent on myself. I, if I am strong in every area, spirit, soul, body, I'll say, I'm able to do it. But when I am weakened in some area, then I am dependent on God. I say, I can't do it. I can't lift this. I can't walk that way. I can't see this. I can't hear it. I am dependent on something else to assist me. In this case, I would become dependent on the Lord. That's the point that Paul is making. He says, this thorn in the flesh was given so that 
God's strength would be apparent in my weaknesses. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. What does it mean for us that when we are weak, we are strong? Throughout this letter to the Corinthians, Paul has been referring to the strength of God that is manifest in the weakness of men. Right? Throughout we see references to that. In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul said that when he despaired of life itself, he was, he, he was so pressed, you know, so much in pressure, and that he said, I despaired even of life. I was thinking that I'm going to die. But, he said, in the midst of that, I was confident of God who can raise us up from the dead. So that even if I died, God would raise me up. So he said, I, even when I was despairing of life itself, I was strengthened by the ability of God, by what God could do, by the fact that God could, could move in that way. Or in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, he says, you know, describing the surpassing power of God and God's treasure, he says, this treasure of God has been placed in these fragile jars of clay. This mortal body that's so easily perishable, so easily damaged. God has put his treasure in these jars of clay to show what? That it's not about these jars. It's about God. It's about his treasure. It's about his power. And so that we looked at this that when in every way we are afflicted, tormented, beset with all sorts of things, we are not crushed. When perplexed, we do not despair. When persecuted, we are not forsaken. And when struck down, we are not destroyed. He said, you know, that's what's the reality of our lives. These things will come. These pressures, these despairing situations, these, these attacks, everything will come. But in the middle of all of that, we rely on the strength of God. We see that God has placed himself and his treasure in us. And so we don't crush. We are not crushed. We're not despairing. We're not perplexed. We're not overcome, but rather we look to the Lord. And then in chapter 6 and chapter 11, what we've just read recently also, we read of Paul's endurance in the face of intense hardship and suffering. Through all of this, we see that the grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God is sufficient. And that when we see that when we are at our weakest, that we are the most dependent or the most reliant on God, right? That's what we see in all these situations. Now, what I want to do, I want to go through three steps in terms of how we deal with our weaknesses and appropriate God's strength. How do we go through that? And, then, and here we're dealing with the weakness and the strength associated with affliction and daily living. We're not talking about being strong or weak in conscience. Remember, we talked about that in 1 Corinthians, where it said, you know, your brother may be offended about this uh, because of his weaker conscience or because he's bothered by you eating meat or whatever. You know, and so he said, those are strengths and weaknesses related to Christian freedom and how Christian freedom is expressed according to your conscience. That's not what Paul is talking about here when he talks about strength and weakness. Here he's talking about the attacks, the physical, mental, spiritual afflictions that can come at us. And then, so not doctrinal differences of any kind, but rather these experiences, these attacks that can come on a daily basis and how do we deal with that? 
How do we live our Christian lives victoriously? So step one, you want to acknowledge the weakness. Acknowledge the weaknesses that we have. Now clearly from various scriptures in, in the word of God, weakness is not only about the body. It's not about just physical weakness, right? It's not, not, not just about physical strength and doing something physically. But weakness is clearly also about the spirit and the soul. So all of our being, our tripartite being, spirit, soul, and body, there are the weaknesses associated with all parts of our body. So acknowledging our weaknesses of spirit, soul, and body and dealing with those weaknesses requires us to deal with what I've classified as sin, pre-sin, and no sin, right? And here's what I mean by that. When we talk about acknowledging our weakness in terms of sin, acknowledging our sin is pretty obvious. Outright disobedience to God, rebellion against him. Sin that it would be manifest in pride or other ways of turning from God. So sin that is contrary to the will of God. Right? We're living in such a way that we are uh, not consecrating these jars of clay and the, where the presence of the Lord is, the temple of the Lord, but rather living according to our own desires. So sin in those ways is fairly obvious. And the, the way to deal with that kind of obvious sin is to repent, is to return to the Lord, is to turn from what we've been doing, is to make sure that we pay attention to what the Lord would speak to us and how he would speak to us about our sin, convicted of sin and then repenting of that sin, right? So we acknowledge our weaknesses in those areas, obvious sin. Those things are pretty straightforward and if there is any work of the Holy Spirit in us, we, we come to know of that, right? we pay attention to that. The second area is where it's our pre-sins, meaning before we get to the actual sinful act, what is that? And that's the things that we've talked about where when we talked about taking thoughts captive, there's a thought that leads to a desire that when that desire is, is indulged or given way to, it gives birth to sin and then that sin gives way to death or gives birth to death, results in death and separation from God. So acknowledging our pre-sins are, are the sins before even they're committed, these desires and thoughts before even we get to the sin. Acknowledging that is a little bit more tricky because many of these kinds of thoughts or desires that we have are often excused. You know, they are our respectable sins. They're like, yeah, I did a little bit of that, I did a little bit of this, but it's okay. Everybody does it, Right? A little bit of gluttony, a little bit of pride, a little bit of anger, you know, but, you know, they provoked me, my kids provoked me, you know, but, you know, a little bit of that, it's okay, it's okay, God understands, it's our respectable sins, we excuse it, right, we say it's okay, or it's our besetting sins, it's been in our life for so long, it's been in our generations, it's been, my dad used to do this, you know, so I do it too. You know, we sort of excuse it in that regard as besetting sins, things that have been there for a long period of time. Or we say, these are things that I didn't know about. These are our blind spots. These are desires, thoughts, things that are affecting us, things that drive us in a certain direction. We just haven't paid attention to it. And when somebody points it out to us, we get offended. We're like, what do you mean? 
You know, who are you to tell me that? Right? Maybe you don't say that out loud, but you're thinking that. Uh, first take the beam out of your eye before you take the speck out of my eye. You know, I mean, we, these are sins that we sort of hold on to. We don't easily let go of them. Obvious sins, big sins, you know, that we say, oh, God, I'm so sorry, I, I repent, I turn to you. But these kinds of things, it's a little bit more tricky. And the Bible is saying that we have to be diligent to acknowledge these areas too, these weaknesses, these temptations, these vulnerabilities, these areas in our life that make us vulnerable to the attack of the evil one, right? And then the last area is not sin. So sin, pre-sin, not sin. You may have a weakness in your life that's actually not sin. It's a strength, meaning you're doing something really well. You are diligent about your quiet time, our quiet time challenge as we're going through this year. You are diligent about prayer. You are diligent about sharing the gospel. You are diligent about living your life in a disciplined manner, in a manner of self-control. You are diligent to, you know, to let the word come into you and to do these things. And these are strengths. These are spiritual maturities that we desire and we want to build and we, want to, we, we yearn for it. But here's the problem. Those strengths can become an opportunity for pride, for conceit, for all of those ways in which we say, hey, look at me. That's what the Pharisees did. They tithed, they helped, they led, they prayed, they worshipped and they said, look at me. I am much better than everybody else. I have shown how the word of God can be lived out. And so there is a tendency for us to get our strengths and amplify our strengths as if they are all on us. We have done something. And we boast about it. So when we acknowledge our weaknesses, we've also got to look at those things that are strengths that we are allowing to shift into pride and conceit and all of that. Right? So all of these areas. So acknowledging our weaknesses goes into all of this. Now, uh, let me also make this point that if you see somebody suffering for some reason, uh, pardon me, you don't even know the reason, suffering, they're just suffering, They've been, they're being afflicted in some way, they're going through some difficulty. Our tendency is not only to look for a reason, to find some explanation, to find some cause, but our tendency is to judge. And, I, and we say, well, it must be because of this, and you need to do this, and you must do that. Right? The Bible is not calling us to be the judge. The Bible is calling us to do these things in our own lives and to pray for our brothers and our sisters. And to say, Lord God, you reveal, you do this. You help each one of us to acknowledge our weaknesses. To make it clear, to know clearly, where is it that I'm falling short of the glory of God. All right, so... Step one, acknowledge our weaknesses. That becomes the way in which we start to deal with our weaknesses and appropriate God's strength. Step two is to pray for the breakthrough. Now, you wrote, notice here that Paul says, this thorn was given to me. What did he do? He prayed. And it says he prayed three times. He says, I prayed three times, asking that this would be removed from me. 
What was the answer? God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Would you say that that was an answer to prayer that he wanted or was expecting or, or needed? Or it was not a good answer to prayer? Our tendency is to look at that description and to say, oh, he prayed for the thorn to be removed and God didn't remove it. You know, his prayer was not good enough. His prayer was not, you know, it didn't, it, God didn't hear his prayer. God didn't answer him. But that's not the case at all. When Paul says he prayed, he says God answered. God absolutely responded to the cry of Paul. And what does he respond with? He says, my grace is sufficient for you. It should remind you of when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's come to the end of his earthly ministry. And he is in deep anguish, deep sorrow, deep pain. And he calls out to the Lord, to Yahweh to say, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. And he's referring to Old Testament, you know, when he says the cup and so on, the cup of suffering and so on. But he says, yet not my will, your will be done. Did God just not listen to that prayer? Did God just not answer that prayer? Did God just say, hmm, not good enough? What do you mean asking me for removing the cup of suffering? None of that. It's very clear that the Lord responds to him because Luke says that an angel of the Lord came and ministered to Jesus. What is he ministering? Strength, com comfort, the means of being lifted up so that he can take that next step of going to the cross. When we come to the Lord and we pray in the middle of our difficulties, it's not that God doesn't hear us. It's not that God doesn't answer us. It's just that sometimes it's not what we expect. Having said that, keeping that in mind, I want to give you three things or just talk about three things. First and foremost, when you have a situation that comes at you, you know, whatever it may be, do rebuke the devil. If this is a messenger from Satan, by all means rebuke the devil. By all means pray to have the devil's influence, the hook that is placed, the vulnerability that is exposed, the thing that is there that the devil is trying to take advantage of. Pray against that. Pray against the work of the devil. Pray against the evil influences that would come into your life. Pray for that. There's, no, there's nothing that hinders you from praying against those things that are coming. Now, again, keep in mind all the things we've just talked about. God has permitted something there may be something that is there for a season. There may be something that is there for a long period of time, whatever it may be. And God is allowing something to happen. But you want to pray according to the will of God for the power of God to be manifest and for the devil's schemes to be thwarted. That's a fine prayer. Go ahead and pray it. You know? And what do we pray for? We are praying for the breakthrough. What is the breakthrough that is to come? Well, the first way in which that breakthrough may come is that we actually receive healing and deliverance and the grace of God. We pray, we say, oh Lord, I feel afflicted in this. I am affected by this in my spirit, in my soul, in my body. Something is happening. And it's very difficult for me. Lord, I pray for healing. 
I pray for deliverance. I pray for your power to be manifest to set me free from this thing that's going on. And the Lord can and does, and in multiple instances we see this, where he does that. He simply brings healing, deliverance, whatever it may be. The woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, for 12 years, I'm sure, every single day she kept praying and saying, God, heal me, heal me, heal me. But at the end of 12 years, Jesus comes along, she touches the hem of his garment, she's healed and delivered. And it becomes a testimony and an opportunity to glorify God. For 12 years though, she struggled with that. She had this issue of blood that nobody could heal or do, do anything about or treat or do anything. And when she comes to that point where she touches the hem of Jesus' garment, there's a healing and a deliverance and the grace of God is manifest. So, what is the breakthrough? There could very well be a breakthrough that there's healing, deliverance, you know, an answer of God in that regard. The grace of God is manifest. But the other kind of breakthrough that can happen when you pray earnestly, when you rebuke the devil, when you ask for healing and deliverance, the other kind of breakthrough response is that the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. Healing and deliverance and grace or healing, deliverance, or grace. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace for what? Grace to go through this. Grace to endure. Grace to stand as a testimony. Grace to be able to say, in my weakness, I am made strong. Grace to testify to the world around you and to others who are going through a similar situation. To say, let me tell you how the Lord has been with me. And he will be with you too. Grace to confront what is happening and to have that strength of the Lord manifest. Step three in dealing with our weaknesses and appropriating God's strength is really getting to that last statement that I'll make even in this message, which is that we live in the grace and the strength of the Lord. There is a need for us to repeat these activities every single day. That every single day at the start of the day, we would say, Lord God, today I need your grace. Today I need healing and deliverance. Today I need the devourer to be rebuked. Today I need all of these attacks that are coming against me to be stopped. Today I pray for that. But no matter what, no matter what changes in my external circumstances or not, no matter how I feel about it in terms of my emotions, no matter what's happening in my physical body, I receive your grace. I receive your grace that is sufficient for me. I receive your grace that will strengthen me. I receive your grace that keeps me going in the purpose to fulfill the purpose and the plan that you have for me. Oh, every single day that we will continue to receive this like this. And there are going to be days when it's very, very tough to do that. Those are the times that you need to call a friend, right? Call a friend, call somebody and you say, hey, today is a tough day. I'm having trouble receiving the grace of God, standing in the grace of God. These attacks are relentless. These attacks are so difficult for me. I'm struggling. I need help. Pray with me. Stand with me. Intercede for me. And we are able to encourage one another to say, keep going. Keep going. Because the grace of the Lord that is sufficient for us is coming from a heavenly Father who knows exactly what we can bear. 
He knows what our extent and our limits are. He knows what troubles we can take on. He knows what cares we can take. He knows what our limits are. And so we're able to say to him, Lord God, I need your grace. I need your grace. When we respond and apply the word of God that we have heard, what we are doing is we are allowing Christ's power to rest on us. That's what Paul says. He says, this thorn in the flesh was given to me, this messenger of Satan. I prayed three times and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. But through all of this, as I've gone through this, I have experienced Christ's power resting on me. You know, when he's able to minister to people, when he's able to administer the ministry, the, the miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit, when he's able to lift up somebody who's dead, who's fallen dead, and lift them up and raise them up to life, when, he, when aprons and handkerchiefs are placed on his body and then sent to other people and they get healed when they touch this, do you think that this was because Paul was such a great guy? No. It's because he says, the power of Christ is resting on me. We want to be people like that. We want to be people who say, oh Lord God, let your power rest on me. When I go in to do my job, when I'm parenting my children, when I'm just driving on the road, when I'm interacting with somebody, some, some person that I haven't spoken to for a long time, suddenly I'm interacting with them on the phone or online, something. What should I say? What should I do? How should I let your, your grace be manifest in this situation? Lord, I need your power. We are totally and completely dependent on the Lord for every day of our lives. If we get up in the morning and we say, today's a good day. I think I'm, I've got it under control. I can go do this day. Everything is in place. I've taken care of things. I've prepared. I'm ready. There's conceit or elation or something else that's getting in the way. We've got to say, Lord God, no matter what I've done, no matter how I've been obedient to you, no matter what has been done to prepare for this day, I rebuke the devourer, I come to you, I pray for healing and deliverance, and I need your power to rest on me. I need your power to rest on me. I need you to open the way for me. I need you to go before me. I need your favor that when I stand before any person, that, Lord, when I open my mouth, it will not be I who speaks, but you do. Oh, Lord God, I need you. That is the grace that is manifest in Paul. That in all these letters, these epistles that we read about in all of these books of the Bible, we don't, we don't really focus on the thorn in the flesh. We come across this phrase one time here in 2 Corinthians 12, but we never really focus on it. Why? Because for every other reference, every other way that he's talking to us, he is describing the power of God. The grace of God, the presence of God, the truth of God, the reality of that relationship with Christ. That's what's in focus. That's what's primary. For us as a church and for us individually, I want to challenge you that we would look to all of our circumstances and say, Lord God, help me to discern. Help me to evaluate. Is this an attack that is coming to me because I have sinned? 
because I've just made myself vulnerable. If so, I repent and let me do that. Let me set things right. Let me go after this. And Lord, if there is those things that I've accounted for, but there's still this unrelenting attack, this, this affliction, these problems, Lord, you show me and you let me know what is going on. And if, Lord, you have permitted this for a season or for the rest of my days, whatever it may be, in the middle of it all, Lord, I need your grace. I need your strength. I need your power. If you're going to permit this, then you have to give this. <laughs> That's what I need, Lord. I need you. And if we will call out to the Lord in that way, we will have lives that are not trouble-free, but we will have lives that are full of God, full of His presence, full of His Holy Spirit. The Bible does not guarantee us that we will be without trouble. In fact, it says there will be lots of trouble. But in the midst of that trouble, we need lots of grace. That's the promise of God. When there is a thorn in the flesh, that we would receive the grace of God. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that Lord Paul is honest about his situation. And Lord, he doesn't boast about his experiences and his accomplishments, but he makes it very clear that he struggled and he had great trouble with this thorn in the flesh, this affliction. But Lord, let his prayer be ours. Let us call out to you with all the pain, with all the difficulty, with all the suffering. We call out to you in all sincerity. But Lord, as we do that, let us not expect our answers or responses, what we think the answer should be, but let us expect your response. Your response of grace. Your response of power. Your response of presence. Thank you, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, do this. Lord, in our church and in the body of Christ, there are many who are suffering. Lord, who are going through so many difficult situations. In the middle of it all, we pray that we would experience what you have promised. What you have done for others, what you did for Paul, do for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.